If I didn't know better, I'd swear I was in, I don't know, Cambodia, in the root-covered ruins of Angkor Wat. But I'm not. I'm in Mexico, about two hours south of Mexico City, near a little pueblo called Jojutla. I drove down here from the city with a friend who has a home here and lots of relatives nearby. We went to visit his aunt and uncle, and his uncle asked me if I'd ever been to Ixtoluca. I'd never heard of it, I told him, so five minutes later we were in his car, bouncing down a dirt road with eight-foot sugar cane on either side. Finally, after about 45 minutes or so, we arrived at our destination, which looked like nothing. We parked in a dirt lot next to a falling-apart house that turned out to be a family-run restaurant. We waded through pigs and chickens and had iguana and nopales for lunch, which were actually delicious, and we finally took a trail behind the restaurant to the place we had come all this way to see, Hacienda Ixtoluca. And folks, I have to tell you, I was stunned. I pride myself on knowing about unusual, off-the-beaten-path kind of places, but I had never heard of this one. And in fact, to this day, I've never met anyone else who has either. It's the only thing I've ever searched for on Google that returned precisely nothing. That's right. My Google search came back having found absolutely nothing. I had to reach out to the mayor of Jojutla, who connected me with a local historian who had a little bit of information about the place. So here's what I'm looking at. This place looks like something out of Pandora or maybe an Aliens movie. It's a ruin, but holy cow, what a structure. The place has 20-foot walls that are six feet thick, and its footprint is many times bigger than a typical big-box store. Inside, row after row of massive arches lace the walls together, creating an eerie light and shadow show. But the things that make the place so weird, the thing that makes it defy words, is the trees. 200-year-old fig trees have completely enveloped the place. They stick out from the walls, hang over the tops of the arches, and completely redefine the shape of this place in beautifully grotesque ways. Over the years, the roots of the trees have completely enclosed the ruin, giving it a shape that's almost gentle. Again, kind of like Angkor Wat. But after doing some research, I learned that there's nothing gentle about the history of Ixtoluca. In April of 1519, the Spanish conquistador Hernán Cortés arrived in Mexico and started what would become 300 years of brutal Spanish colonialism. In December of that year, King Fernando II of Aragón signed the Laws of Burgos, which were a set of rules that were supposedly created to protect the indigenous people of New Spain, what we know as Latin America. What they actually did was give permission to the Spanish colonials to enslave the local population. Starting with the Aztec Empire and then moving on to the Yucatan Peninsula, Cortes and his army took over the region, fanning out from Mexico into territories that would later become Peru, Colombia, and Argentina in search of gold and silver. Thousands of people were forced into slavery under the rules of what were called encomiendas, huge land grants from the Spanish crown. Amazingly, people in Spain complained in what had to be one of the world's first human rights arguments, especially a guy named Bartolomé de las Casas, who became known as the protector of the Indians and famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, for his criticism of the treatment of the local people. In 1542, he published a short account of the destruction of the Indies, which documented the atrocities that were being committed in New Spain. 
This got the attention of the Spanish public and ultimately the king, and to avoid political fallout, Charles V issued Las Leyes Nuevas, the New Laws, which among other things made slave labor illegal. Once the new laws went into effect, silver production in New Spain took a nosedive. Since slavery was no longer legal, labor costs went up exponentially. And because of decades of aggressive mining, by the time the new laws went into effect, the richest ores were gone. By the end of the 16th century, silver production in New Spain was so prohibitively expensive that it was almost not worth doing. But as always happens, innovation crept in. In 1557, Bartolomé de Medina, a Spanish silver merchant, developed a technique to extract silver from native ore that was more cost-effective than the traditional smelting technique that had been in use from the beginning, a technique that involved roasting the ore in very high-heat furnaces. Known as the patio process, de Medina's technique used mercury to extract silver from native ore. The ore, even that with relatively low yield, was crushed to a fine powder and then combined with salt, water, copper sulfate, and mercury. The resulting slurry was spread out in a thick layer within a shallow enclosure, that was the patio, and the slurry was then stirred continuously for weeks by men and horses, and under the hot Mexican sun, a chemical reaction took place that precipitated pure silver from the paste. The silver combined with the mercury to form an amalgam similar to what many of us have in our teeth, which was then processed to remove the mercury from the amalgam, leaving behind pure silver. The mercury, along with some of the silver, was lost into the environment. If the azoguero, literally the mercury man, was skilled at his job, he could minimize the amount of mercury required to process the amalgam, but on average, twice as much mercury was lost in the process as silver was gained. Not the most environmentally friendly extraction methodology. Keep in mind that we have the Alice in Wonderland term Mad Hatter, because mercury was used to tan hides that were ultimately turned into hats and prolonged contact with mercury causes dementia. Anyway, the mercury was so important in this process that the taxation system used by the Spanish crown to assess the value of mining operations was based on the amount of mercury used to extract the silver rather than on the value of the silver itself. Now, as it turns out, Hacienda Istoluca was one of de Medina's main patio processing facilities. The technique became the primary method for purifying silver, one consequence of which was a growing demand for mercury. The Spanish government maintained a tight monopoly on its production and sale, most of which was produced at mines in Huancavelica in Peru and Almaden in Spain, both of which were controlled by the Spanish government. In 1910, during the Mexican Revolution, Hacienda Istoluca, or what was left of it at the time, was seized by the military and partially restored to be used as a base of operations for Zapatista troops. When the revolution ended, it became the property of a local cooperative farm. These co-ops, called ejidos, represented a big piece of the Aztec economy. When the Spaniards arrived to colonize the region, the ejido system was dismantled in favor of the encomienda, under which indigenous people were indentured to Spanish landholders to serve as laborers. The landholders were required to teach Spanish to the local people, and indoctrinate them into Catholicism. But in 1927, a presidential decree made the encomienda model illegal and mandated the reinstatement of the ejidos. When the Mexican Revolution ended in the 1920s, Ixtaluca was abandoned. 
During the Second World War, when demand for mercury to make explosives and drugs was high, attention turned once again to the mining region south of Mexico City, where tons of the stuff had leached into the ground during the patio process. In 1943, a military detachment from Monterrey was dispatched to Ixtoluca to dig up the ground around the place so that the mercury could be extracted. The effort was successful and quite lucrative. For about a year, mercury was among the most demanded minerals on the planet. Today, Ixtoluca is a shell of six-foot-thick walls and rows upon rows of arches that supported the original building. But what a magnificent ruin. The place is immense, a 377,000-square-foot structure. End-to-end, a repeating pattern of 30-foot stone arches draped in knotty masses of thick, ropey roots creates a vanishing point that disappears into the distance. Beehives hang from the arches and drip honey in the tropical heat, and iguanas peer from above. We came here as children, says Fernando. We would come on weekends and picnic in the shade under these arches. He gestures at the massive stone structure above his head, stepping carefully around the pool of honey collecting below a barrel-shaped hive. The only sounds are the gentle wash of the river below the ruins and the birds and the ceaseless drone of the beehives. I'm Steve Shepard. For the Natural Curiosity Project, thanks for listening.